Jesus' name. Amen. After Joyce and I returned from about uh, four or five weeks of being away recently when I was on our sabbatical, one of the tasks that we faced upon our reentry into town was sorting through a large stack of mail. Now, as you know, I would estimate, as probably you do, if you looked at your mail, I would say about 85% of that mail was what we call junk mail, unsolicited bulk mail, which ends up in our house being recycled. It does at least serve some purpose. And I try not to waste time opening junk mail, right? So what I do is I look at the envelope, try to, to gain as best I can an understanding of who mailed that to me. And if it is in any way identifiable, another credit card application, you know, I'm just ripping them up and away they go. If I can identify who the sender is, it helps me understand how important are the contents of the letter. And so today as we look into the word, I want us to look now into a letter in the New Testament, the book of Galatians. And if you'll turn in your Bible to page 1383, Galatians chapter 1, I'll just remind you that the letters of the New Testament, with the exception of Hebrews, always begin include a sender notification. This is who's sending this letter, and the same is true with the book of Galatians. We start off the first word, Paul. An apostle is how the book begins. This book of Galatians, it's a letter. It was composed after Paul and Barnabas had established four churches in what is called southern Galatia. The churches of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It is one of the earliest letters found in the New Testament. Some have estimated it was written about almost 50 years in the year of our Lord, A.D. 50. It is remarkable about the historic letter. What's really remarkable about it is the tone of the letter. The letter is devoid of any kind of sentimental musings. It is a direct, serious letter of correction. And Paul wrote to urgently defend the gospel that he had proclaimed to the members of these different Galatian churches. And he was highly concerned about the destructive and damning influence of those who were spreading a religion of merit and who were undermining, as they did so, his authority to speak to this issue. And so in this letter, Paul was practicing, I believe, what he had preached. And that's important. We need to practice what we preach. And so Paul had written, as written a couple years later to the Ephesians, he wrote that we should communicate what we communicate to be according, sorry, let me back up. He wrote that when we communicate, we ought to be communicating for the good and the edification according to the need of the moment. So what's the need of the moment for the Galatians? Well, it needs to be in such a way, whether it's verbal or written, communicate to give grace to those who receive that kind of communication. And so because of the distrust that had developed between those in the Galatian churches and the one who founded those churches, that is Paul, Paul very carefully chose and selected his words in this book. His intention was primarily not to defend his position as the one who founded and established as a missionary and planted these churches. 
it was intended to edify his readers, to warn them, to instruct them, so that they would understand, and everyone else who reads it, that is you and me, what's at stake if the gospel is replaced with a false gospel. And so in composing this powerhouse of a letter, Paul defended the gospel while exemplifying grace. And that's the cornerstone, indeed, of the gospel. So he doesn't want to communicate in such a way that he's actually destroying the gospel that he holds and is trying to hold up high. And so I want to take this just for a moment as we sort of get our way into this book. I want us to step back and look at the big picture of the author who wrote it and consider three approaches that Paul utilized as he confronted these converts. Confronting them to hold fast to the gospel by salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone. Who's, what's the first point here? The first approach that Paul said, he wrote as an apostle. An apostle with the unique authority to define and defend the gospel. If Paul had been successfully discredited by those false teachers who were seeking to mislead other Galatian believers through the charm and flattery, which I think is what he's alluding to in chapter 3, verse 1, when he talks about being bewitched. Apparently they're using all sorts of flattery to build these people up and then lead them astray. The gospel, if, if Paul had been discredited, then even the gospel would have been discredited. And so Paul began his epistle with these carefully chosen words, verse 1, chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, our English word apostle comes from a Greek word, which means to send, to send. And so the word is used in the Bible a number of different ways, the word apostle, and there's two primary ways that uh, has two different uses of the word apostle in the New Testament. One way it was used was to refer to what I call, number one, missionaries. Missionaries, people who were messengers of the churches. And so I've given several different uh, texts there, including Epaphroditus and other ones. They were sent ones with a message given, and they were sent out by the local churches. But I would say that's only happens like one or two times. But the preponderance of New Testament uses of the word apostle refer to what we would call the original 12 men that Jesus appointed, and he sent them out to preach and to represent him. Now, that select group I call, and this is to make it a little more clear what we're talking about here, I call that group the capital A apostles, so that you would actually capitalize the word apostle with the capital A there. That refers to this group that's clearly called and selected by Christ, and they have to have, indeed, as we'll look in just a moment, certain things that are true of them. But you would add to that, of course, Paul. You would add to that group Matthias, of course, and uh, those who were associated with that early group. Now, what is it about this capital A Apostles? Well, they were chosen emissaries. They're chosen as heralds who had unique qualifications. Not just anybody could be an apostle with a capital A. Number one, they had to receive a personal commission. A personal commission. You see, they were never self-appointed. And that's why Paul, in introducing himself in this book, reminds him of that fact. I'm not a self-appointed apostle. That's what many of the apostles were who were going around within the churches there 
in the first century, claiming that they were apostles, but they were self-appointed ones, false apostles. But, but Paul says, listen, in verse 1, chapter 1, he says, I have never been appointed by another person. I have never been appointed by another church. He says, God had called me and chosen me and commissioned him. Indeed, that was what happened as we read the book of Acts. Paul's encounter with the risen Son of God on the road to Damascus would, would be what we call the occasion of his divine appointment. God said, I am sending you to the Gentiles. You are now a person I am sending to do my work. Number two, in terms of the unique qualifications of a capital A apostle, is they were also required to have a historical experience, something unique about them and what they actually encountered in their lives. In seeking a replacement for Judas in Acts chapter 1, the apostles looked for a man who had been taught and tutored in the true gospel by Jesus, along with having been a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Acts 1.22. Now, Paul kept picking up on this particular qualification in his ministry over the years, and he would make allusion to the fact that he indeed met one of the apostolic prerequisites in this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Paul wrote, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Answer was yes. He had seen him on the way to Damascus and a number of other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to all the apostles and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, this is Paul writing, he appeared to me also, he says. So he lumps himself together with the other apostles as one who had seen the risen Christ. And then if you look in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, just several lines down there from chapter 1, 112, he says, he received the gospel through revelation of Jesus Christ. So he is claiming that what he had received and what was he proclaiming was something given directly to him by instruction from Jesus Christ himself. Indeed, that obviously set him apart with unique qualifications. Now, these capital A apostles were conscious of this kind of unique position that they enjoyed. And so Jesus informed his apostles when he was with the twelve during his earthly ministry. He made them know that the Holy Spirit was going to be given in order to teach them, in order to help them to, to be able to know the things they need to know, to be able to fulfill their inspired teaching ministry of writing the New Testament epistles. A number of times Jesus indicated the Holy Spirit's going to help you to be able to remember and know the things you need to know. And believe, I believe what he was saying was, I'm going to enable you to do your writing of the New Testament books. Peter referred to Paul's writings as scripture. While Paul was still alive. He termed it as scripture. It, clearly, it was known to be that which had authority, had weight. It was written by an apostle. And the ministry of the first century apostles was uniquely authenticated, interestingly enough, by miracles. If you look at some of the texts of scripture, it indicates that the capital A apostles were known to be people who had unique abilities and who were associated with unique signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, we read this. The signs of a true apostle, of course this is written in the context of a lot of false apostles making all sorts of claims, 
But Paul says, no, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. That's a true apostle. Hebrews chapter 2, we read also that salvation was confirmed to us, the writer says, by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. This applied to that capital A, Apostles. And then, interestingly enough, if you look at Acts 14.3, which I would urge you to do, page 13.15 in your pew Bible, Paul picks up on this, well, Luke includes it in his account, of the ministry of Paul in Iconium, one of these churches in Galatia. And we read in Acts 14.3 that the Lord was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by Paul and Barnabas' hands. What's he saying? He's saying that the early capital A apostles were authenticated. That is, they were proven to be true, legitimate representatives of Jesus Christ because they had unique abilities that indeed set them apart from the average ordinary person. And so Paul is writing as a true apostle, and he also, as a capital A apostolic, one with apostolic authority, is one of the key themes in this book of Galatians. He's trying to emphasize his authority as one who would speak to these issues, and he's reminding them, don't you remember when I first was here ministering to you, when I was there among these various cities establishing these churches? He says in chapter 4, verse 14 of Galatians, you looked at me and saw me as God's, some translations say angel, I prefer the word messenger, God's messenger. I was the one sent from God. And Paul also, in writing to the Second Corinthians, again, because of all of the various um, ways in which his authority had been challenged by these false apostles, in 2 Corinthians 13.10, Paul summarized his view of his God-sanctioned authoritative writings. Listen to what he says. I am writing these things while absent in order that when present I may not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. See, Paul used his divinely bestowed capital A apostolic authority to defend the gospel, set the record straight, for those who foolishly assume that in order to be saved, and this is what the rumor was going around, the movement was going around in those churches in Galatia, that all they needed to do was to keep the law plus trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. But Paul defended his capital A apostolic authority in order to defend the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection alone. And also Paul insisted that apostolic authority is divine authority, derived from God and not derived from men. Apostolic authority was never conferred upon someone by the church. Very important to understand that. Apostolic, capital A, apostolic authority was never conferred upon someone by the church. You see, the scriptures written by the apostles therefore are viewed as having authority over the church. Not the other way around. The church does not have authority 
over the writings of scriptures, including the New Testament epistles. The church has no authority over the scriptures. And interestingly enough today, no one alive today has authority, or no one alive today meets the requirements of a capital A apostle. You see why? Because they had unique experiences and they had unique qualifications and no one meets those qualifications. And as you know, the church in Rome insists that the Pope is one who has capital A authority, claiming that there is such a thing as apostolic succession. But if you really look carefully at it, it all falls apart. There were many centuries where there was no Pope in place at all. Not to mention, no one ever fulfills, again, the capital A apostle requirements that are set forth in the scriptures. And so the book of Galatians was indeed composed with authority written by the apostle Paul himself. And boy, what authority that book has. It is this book that Martin Luther began to study in earnest and exposited the teachings of that book the year before he had the courage to post his 95 theses, describing what he thought was needing to change and be corrected within the church. It was two years after that that the commentary that he wrote on the book of Galatians was put into print, and here comes the tremendous impetus of change based on the authority of the Apostle Paul and his teaching in Galatians that began to bring correction and change and challenge the status quo and the abuses within the Roman church. And so what we have here, and I would like to again encourage us to be aware that when you're reading a New Testament epistle, if you disregard it, if you disobey the New Testament epistle, it's as if you're saying, I'm disobeying and disregarding Jesus, who commissioned the apostles, who sent them forth with equipping them to write the books of the New Testament, who sanctioned them to write as capital A apostles and those associated with those apostles, and therefore these words have weight. They are to be relied upon, they are to be considered truth to guide us, and not just some passing uh, fad or someone else's opinion. Well, that's the first point, and that's a pretty strong point if you read the book. It's a lot of Paul defending himself and who he is to speak in this situation. Secondly, I'd like to point out that Paul wrote as a spiritual father, not only as an apostle with authority, but he wrote as a spiritual father. This is a very wonderful aspect of his ministry. He wrote as a spiritual father with earnest, confrontive love for his fellow believers. One reason Paul wrote was to provide authoritative correction. We talked about that. He wanted to give inspired instruction to the deceived believers who were starting to be drawn away. And a second reason I'm suggesting is that he's writing to these converts. He has deep concern for them, and he loves them as a spiritual father who longs to see his children grow to maturity in the faith. And during his initial season of ministry among them, the Galatian believers, if you look at chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, they had a tender affection toward him. Apparently he was ill on some, to some level, perhaps because of the stoning. He was not in good health at all. And, uh, and so they were aware of his ailing uh, health, and they were aware of his being in physical need, and so their heart went out to him. They cared about him deeply. But now it's a different situation. 
He's no longer with them, and his love is leading him to now confront them, to speak into their life in words that perhaps may sound as if it's not the kind of, of, uh, of tenderness they were hoping to hear from him, but he's confronting them about adding human merit to the gospel. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 16 of Galatians, look what he says there. He says, 4.16, Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have I become your enemy? He's now looking at the fact that when he's speaking into their life now by writing this letter, some people are going to look at him as if he's what? He's against them. And so if you'll notice in chapter 4, verse 19, this is a very important verse. Paul is saying, I'm writing to you because there's a heavy heart as a spiritual father. Oh, how I love you so much. I don't want to just see you go in this direction. There's such deep affection and devoted love for his Galatian children. Look what he says, verse 19 of chapter 4. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Now, I have never been in labor. Thank God. I have sat there three times, and I've witnessed it, and it is a lot of suffering. It's incredible what the human body of a mother-to-be is having to do to prepare for childbirth, to allow that child to be birthed. Now, Paul is saying that he is suffering as if he were in childbirth because in his suffering, his desire is to see these Galatian believers safely delivered so that they will not be inherently dependent and living off of him, but that they might become what? Independent of him as time moves on so that they can stand and be mature in the faith apart from him. His heart is longing for them. You can tell he deeply loves them. And if you're reading these pages and you don't sense Paul's concern for them as a spiritual father, you're not reading it in the proper lens of interpretation. And here's another thing I'm trying to point out of this. Paul's rebuke and his commitment to speak the truth was the fruit of his committed godly love. Ephesians chapter 4, 15 says that. A loving parent does not sit by when one's child is deceived into thinking that drinking arsenic is a great idea. You don't just say, oh, that's so cute. You're gonna, oh, you're going to drink the arsenic. Oh, okay, that, that's, that's really cute. No, a parent doesn't say that. A parent loves the child so much, he will say, put that down, give me that, and grab it out of their hands. A parent who truly loves his small child will not dismiss as unimportant indications that his child is somehow thinking that it, it's okay to look at whoever it is online, whoever presents their profile online, they're all loving and trustworthy people. And so I can enter, engage with anybody and believe everything they have to say. If a parent allows a child to believe that false assumption, then he what? He's no longer acting in love toward that child, to protect that child. It's interesting how our view of love is so often distorted into thinking that we uh, would never do anything that's difficult for a child when love is what? It's corrective. 
Hebrews 12 says true love, biblical love, disciplines. True love corrects. True love confronts with truth. And look at chapter 1, verse 10. Very interesting phrase Paul uses here. One that I have really taken to heart because I struggle in this area. I'm going to admit it. Maybe you do too. Paul says, listen, I am not a people pleaser. People pleasers like to say things that people like to hear. But look what Paul says. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Having said that as what? As a person who spoke the gospel and got stoned for it. (laughs) Talk more about that in a minute. Paul's saying what? I'm not going to shrink back from correcting you and of rebuking you if you are indeed moving in the wrong direction of error and you're going to destroy the gospel in the meantime. I'm going to speak to you about that out of love. Why is it that we don't speak and correct those around us who are heading in a direction that's not in keeping with biblical truth? Paul had chutzpah. Yeah, that's a good word. He had courage. He was not a people pleaser. Look what he wrote in chapter 2, verse 11. He said, well, you don't want to speak to certain people because some people are too important and they're too public of a figure. You would never want to speak to them. Look what he says here with regard to the importance of the gospel and protecting it, making sure it's kept indeed the true gospel. Paul did not shrink from correcting and rebuking one of the key leaders of the Jerusalem church. You say, who might that be? Chapter 2, verse 11. I oppose Peter to his face. He spoke directly right into Peter's face. Why? Because he sensed that what Peter was doing was undermining the gospel, causing us huge issue. And he says, I can't ignore it. The gospel's at stake here. So I ask the question, why is it that we have a tendency to avoid speaking the truth in love to our brothers and sisters? Why, is I, why do I have such a hesitancy about it? I had to admit that the other day to the elders. Why do we shrink back and withhold our true love from our children if we who are parents? Why do we hold back from correcting our children when we see them rebelliously Uh, uh, refusing to uh, submit to our authority and doing things completely in the wrong. Why do we not correct them? Why do we not point out the various damning lies that they may get into when they're duped into believing that which is false, that which is a false gospel, that which indeed is part of worldly teaching? True discipleship must include the elements of correction, of rebuke, of confrontation in which we bring forth in love, truth. And look at what Paul said to Timothy, one of his cohorts that he had trained and tried to establish in the ministry there in Ephesus, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Look what he wrote, page 1416 in your pew Bible. Paul speaks to Timothy and he says, Timothy, I want you to reprove I want you to preach the word and reprove and rebuke, exhort with great patience, and that's what we have to remember. 
You have to use patience. You can't lose your control. You can't become so hot under the collar nobody wants to listen to you. With great patience and great instruction. Now you say, what, why are you going to make such a big deal and confront people? What, why do you want to do that? Look at all the risks of what might happen. People get their feelings hurt. It, it could potentially cause some real problems. It, it could lead to all sorts of conflict. Look what Paul said in that same text in chapter, in chapter 4, 2 Timothy, verses 2 through 5. He says, There will come a time when some people will not endure sound doctrine. They're going to want to have their ears tickled. They just want to hear what they like and what makes good sense to them and what seems to appeal to their flesh. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. You know what evangelist means there, I think? One who keeps proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Keep proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Make sure they hear the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. And don't settle for anything less. I find this book to be a great challenge to my own heart to say, to what extent am I committed to truth and I'm willing to risk the fact that I am not, I'm going to fight against the idol of my heart that says I want to be a, a people pleaser. I just want people to think and think of me highly. No, I'm going to be a person who says, I'm pleasing Christ. I have to tell you this, brother, sister. Even if it means you might think my, my motives might be poor. Do I always do it right? No. The other day I had to ask someone to forgive me for an email. I blasted out in a moment of frustration. Didn't get all the facts. Had to say, you know, ask you to forgive me. I'm sorry. That's sort of a, a mundane event we all have had to do at some point. But I'm talking about those heart-to-heart concerns we have for people if we see them moving away from the truth of the gospel. People who lose a sense of, can I be forgiven? I feel the guilt weighing me down. My friend, don't let that person go off in the sunset without you seeking them out and let them know the power of the gospel, the power of the cross to forgive our sin and to have that weight lifted from them. If there's a person who says they just go off and they don't care about sin any longer because they say, oh, well, Jesus has paid for it, is a person that needs to hear the gospel and understand the cost of what it took for Christ in order to understand the gospel is meant so that we might live in newness of life with repentance. It's not easy speaking the truth in love. But that's what truth that's really in our core will prompt us to do. Because why? Because someone had the courage to speak truth to us at some point. Praise God. Thirdly, real quickly, I want to just, uh, one more thing I want us to consider as we, as we read through this amazing letter. Paul wrote as an evangelist, An evangelist with a heart set free by grace. My friend, you have a sense of, it's pretty obvious to me that that comes through pretty clearly in the book here, but what's interesting is to back up and get the background of Paul. And I'm assuming some of you know this, some of you may not know this, but in his earlier days, Paul invested a lot of his energy, a lot of his time in inflicting suffering, I mean serious suffering upon those who were the followers of Jesus and the true gospel. You've got to know that. If you don't know that about Paul, then you're not going to understand this amazing turnaround in this man's life. More than a dozen years earlier, Saul the Pharisee had the followers of Jesus arrested, chained, and shackled behind bars. And now his heart had been set free 
by the gospel of grace. And no longer did he attempt to keep the law as a means to be somehow made right with God. That was no longer his passion. No longer was he zealously trying to achieve this quote-unquote blamelessness through good works. But Paul discovered great freedom in the gospel. And he was liberated from all of this obsession about himself, trying to stay away from people who were defiled or who didn't meet up to the standards, and also trying to what? Keep thinking about himself so that he could make all of the good choices and all the right things. It's all about him attaining himself to this level of blamelessness before God. And now he's been freed to suffer for Christ and suffer for other people. He wasn't living for himself anymore. As a result of his ministry of sowing the gospel of grace in that city of Lystra, Paul endured tremendous suffering. Here he is, the man who used to go around arresting people following Jesus. Now look at what's happening to him in chapter 13 and 14. 14 verse 5 says that Barnabas and Paul had to leave town, go to another district because of persecution. They were stirring up the crowds. In chapter 14 verse 5, they attempted to mistreat them. They tried to stone them in Iconium. And then in chapter 14 verse 19, we read that while they're in Derby, the next town over, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came into town, and boy, they picked up those stones, and they literally stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. He probably had been unconscious, I'm I'm assuming. The one who was writing this letter had endured that in one of the cities to whom he's writing. Paul was liberated from being preoccupied with himself. He was set free by grace to be an agent of grace to others because of the liberating power of the gospel. Now Paul's concern in writing Galatians was that this liberating message of the gospel of salvation by grace alone provided by Christ's death on the cross for sinners as a substitute for sinners, he was concerned that it was being destroyed. So his passion for grace was motivating him here. And so the cross of Jesus was a stumbling block to so many people of that time because the good people, quote-unquote the good people, who were trying to earn their way and keep the law, they were offended at all this talk about the cross. Look at chapter 6, verse 17 of Galatians. Chapter 6, verse 17. Here is Paul saying that the cross of Jesus that was a stumbling block, a point of offense, a point at which people said, oh, give me a break, don't talk about this cross anymore, it's it's offensive to me. They're too busy trying to improve themselves because they think that they can improve themselves enough to be right with God, a false gospel. Here is Paul saying, listen, I am boasting in the cross. I no longer am striving to improve myself. He says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, I treasure the grace of God so much that I've received in the gospel that I'm willingly enduring suffering as a bondservant of Christ. And the marks on my body that maybe have come from that stoning or from the various forms of abuse that he had undergone is just a testament the fact that I belong to Jesus. He saved me by his grace, and that's what motivates me to do what I'm doing. He celebrated the privilege of becoming united to Christ 
on the basis of grace, and now he was in actually enjoying and had some measure of, of boasting in the fact that he was what? Sharing in Christ's sufferings. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul's credentials were vastly different from the false teachers of his day. The false teachers of that day were busy improving themselves, trying to be better than everybody else. The false teachers in today's world, oftentimes, many of them, they are proclaiming a false gospel. It's not going to liberate sinful hearts through the cross on the basis of God's grace, but it's the gospel of what? Improve yourself by what? Offering seeds of faith. Send that first gift of money to me, and God will begin working in your life. And so they're, they're fleecing people who are desperate and who are poor and who, don't, who, are, who are desperate for some sort of uh, improvement in their health or they're financially in such plights. And, and so they talk about seeds of faith and donations to their ministry, all the while promising God will give them wealth and health, proclaiming a false gospel offering them your best life now. Man, Paul would not have bought into that with the what? Brand marks of Jesus on his body. <laughs> it just does not fit. What does this have to do with you and me? I think as we think about the person writing such a book as this, you've got to ask yourself, what kind of gospel sets somebody free from themselves that they endure this? as a badge of honor, as they endure kind of, that kind of mistreatment from other people. What kind of gospel is it? It is a gospel of grace. Paul has been so committed to trying to improve himself, improve himself, improve himself, and do better and do better. He's like, I'm so glad I'm away from that kind of thing. That's a false gospel. He says, now I find acceptance before God on the basis of Christ, and therefore I am accepted by Christ. I am loved by Christ. I am secure in Christ. I can now suffer for Christ. I don't care what anybody does to me or says to me. It set him free from himself. And his scars and injuries are a badge of honor. Further giving testimony to the power of the gospel of grace. Is it any wonder Paul says, I don't want to see you leave this gospel? <laughs> it has radically changed him. So my friend, I ask this. When the gospel of amazing grace grips your heart, has it ever gripped your heart in such a way that you're saying, you know, Lord, I, I willingly, I openly want to take up my cross. And I want to follow the Jesus who gave himself for me so that I, the recipient of grace, want to know what it is to live by grace. The grace that says no to self and says, yes, Lord Jesus, here I am. Are you in a troubled marriage? Are you with children, dealing with children that are highly challenging for you right now? Are you facing situations at work where you're dealing with all sorts of ethical landmines all around you? Are you dealing with a difficult relative, someone who's giving you a hard time about your commitment to the church or the gospel or whatever. My friend, ask yourself, how great is the grace we receive in this gospel? How great is that grace that we received? It is the grace that motivates us and gives us a desire to say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to live to please myself. I want to live to please you because you have given me, treated, you've treated me on the basis of grace and not by making me do all the things I couldn't ever do. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I thank you for the indeed privilege it has been for me just to think about these truths this week, Lord. Thank you for exposing the idols in my own heart, the idol of being a people pleaser, not being willing to say difficult things that need to be said sometimes, withholding the love that you call us to show to those around us. Lord, I pray that if there are other idols in our hearts, maybe some of us are here today, Lord, we have the idol in our heart of comfort. I just want to live a comfortable life. I don't want difficulties. I don't want hassles. I don't want people to view me in, in ways that make my life more difficult. I don't want to have to give up anything. I don't want to have to make sacrifices. I just want to be comfortable. Lord, I pray that that idol would clearly be exposed by the wonders of the gospel of grace that we would begin to ask ourselves, who or what are we really living for? Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to this teaching in your word, that we would put ourselves under the authority of the word of God and not live by our feelings, not live by the culture around us, not live by the, the fashions of the world that, that encourage us to live for self. Lord, give us, I pray, a liberated heart Oh, liberate our hearts, I pray, to sense the wonder of grace that we receive in Jesus Christ. And Lord, set us free from ourselves, from our fears, from our idols, from the things that constrain us and hold us back from being bold, courageous bondservants of Jesus Christ, wherever you assign us to serve you. Lord, do these things, we pray, for the glory of your great name, we ask it. Amen.